Hey there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. I'm thrilled to share that I'll be recording live from the Wild Goose Festival this July 11 through 14. Wild Goose Festival is a transformational community grounded in faith-inspired social justice. It's a one-of-a-kind gathering that brings together activists, artists, and seekers from all walks of life to explore justice and art, spirituality, and community. The festival will take place at Van Hoy Farms in Union Grove, North Carolina, and I'd love for you to join me there. From engaging workshops to inspired panels and interactive experiences, Wild Goose has something for everyone. So mark your calendars and let's be part of this incredible community that is committed to making a positive impact in the world. For more information, visit www. WildGooseFestival.org. As one of my followers, use a discount code A-TLE24. That's A-TLE24. And you'll get $50 off the price of an adult weekend ticket. We will see you there at the Wild Goose Festival to connect, to build community, and to work for social justice. Hi there, friends of Holy Shenanigans Podcast. This is Pastor Tara Lamont Eastman. And here in the season of Eastertide, as we're looking for signs of new life and resurrection, I am excited to introduce our special guest this week, Suzanne John Blacksnake. Hi there, Suzanne. Thank you so much for taking time to join me here at Holy Shenanigans Podcast. Hello, good morning, and I'm very glad to be here. Suzanne, could you tell us a little bit more about who you are and why you wanted to share a story with us? Yes, I'm a member of the Seneca Nation. I'm of the Deer Clan. And I've lived in this area, Western New York, all of my life. I was born and raised in Salamanca on the Allegheny Reservation, Allegheny Territory, we call it, and went to school in Salamanca. I have a background in higher education. I worked as a school counselor. I'm now retired. (laughs) And I've also held a variety of jobs with the Seneca Nation of Indians. So I've had a lot of good experiences that combine well for me. I'm a member and elder of the Jimerson Town Presbyterian Church. It's a small rural congregation. We've probably been around about 100 and 80 years, 190 maybe. (laughs) And we are revitalizing and reaching out and doing a little bit more, I guess, trying to interact more with our community. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of why I'm here today. It gives me a chance or that opportunity to discuss our background and who we are and where we come from and where we're going. (laughs) That's wonderful. Thank you so much for taking the time to let people know more about you as well as your church and their hope to reach out and connect with community. The Presbyterian Church is a tradition in my family, I guess you would say, dating back to the very first movement of Presbytery settling and coming to Western New York State. A lot of the early mission work has been outreach to the Seneca Nation 
And it's really a big part of the history of New York State. Just the types of things that were happening socially and economically and emotionally to the Seneca Indians. The Presbyterian Church has been one of the supports that have tried to offer some stabilization and spirituality that could help us through some really dark times. Do you have any stories or examples of support and care to the Seneca people? After the wars, the Senecas were adjusting to a new way of life. We were adjusting to a lot of economic hardships. They burned the land. They destroyed our crops, everything, our way of life. So we were very destitute and we were reforming as a people, as a culture. We were trying to find our way, trying to find our identity. Who are we? Now what do we do? We've been wiped out. So around 1823, we had a formation of one of our first Presbyterian churches. And that was on the Cataraugus territory. Later, Reverend Asher Wright was sent to the Buffalo Creek area. And he immediately began working with the territory at the Buffalo Creek Reservation and with the Cataraugus territory. I would have to say... Looking back, that Reverend Asher Wright and his wife, Laura, must have been some very special people to be able to develop trusting relationships, to be able to be compassionate and sensitive to a culture that they knew nothing about and possibly at first had very little understanding of our values and our culture, and yet became very accepting by Seneca people. They became loved by many Seneca people, not all, but they had a very strong influence. In 1842, that was a very, oh, almost like a time of mourning, I think, for the Senecas. There was a military group that removed Senecas from the Buffalo Creek Territory. And that the goal was to have these Senecas of all ages Elders, children, mothers, fathers walk across the United States to go to Kansas to resettle us. There was not very good preparation, no food, no rations. And during this escorted walk, many Senecas died. Some ran away and came back and they were sick. There was a handful of Senecas that did not go on the walk. They relocated back to the Kedaragas Territory. One of the areas we call today Newtown. The Senecas that settled there were very angry, very bitter, and they didn't trust anyone, understandably. And also, you know, were very against Christianity because it did represent a lot of the European influence. Right. At that time. So there was kind of this faction happening on the Kedaragas territory with a Christian movement and then what we call the longhouse religion or native religion. Because of a lot of European exposure that we weren't used to, it hurt our community. A lot of alcohol and drinking was going on. Mm-hmm. You can imagine a culture that would be going through some depression and trauma Yeah, was coping in yeah. unhelpful ways, and it affected our family systems. There was a lot of children affected because their parents had died. Laura and Reverend Asher Wright had started taking children into their home. People would bring the kids to them. They'd bring children, they'd bring babies. They'd say, I can't take care of them. You need to do something. So at first they started just 
taking children into their home. And that became too much. <laughs> and they started to look at how could they meet that growing need. And they started an orphanage. It got to a point where even other Iroquois nations in New York State were sending their children here too, because they were going through some similar conditions. So what started out as an orphanage became larger and the Presbyterian church kind of needed to turn this over to someone. Mm -hmm. That was the formation of the New York State Thomas Asylum for Indian children. And that was on the Cataraugus territory. It was a large complex, many brick buildings. It had a gymnasium. It had, you know, classroom, boarding, dormitories. It was a working farm. It had probably over a hundred or so, maybe 150 children of all ages residing there. Three generations of my family have been in native boarding schools, Indian boarding schools. And I feel personally, you know, that effect today. You couldn't practice your religion. You couldn't speak your native language. You were punished if you did any of that. And the intent was to make you like a white person. It was to make you forget your Indian ways and to get you ready to be functioning in a white society. That was the goal. Wow. And because of that, many Senecas did lose their language. Yeah. The boarding schools have done a lot of damage in that sense to our culture, to our heritage to our self-esteem. You look at three generations being told that Indian's no good, you're not good, white is good, that's what you want to be. Can you imagine children yeah. <laughs> for over a hundred years <laughs> cycling through that kind of messaging? Yeah. The boarding schools didn't end till around 1950. So, you know, to me, it's recent history. Yeah. The Presbyterian Church as a large group wrote an apology maybe eight years ago, I'm not sure. There's a written apology somewhere. In my memory of being involved with the Presbytery here on Territory, I do not recall anyone coming to our reservations to make that apology mm. for Presbytery. So I guess I'm still waiting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm right mad. Maybe as people from Presbytery and beyond hear this conversation, Maybe what comes of this is that the Seneca people receive in person that apology from the Presbyterian Church as a whole. We'll be back after a quick break. Do as I say, not as I do. Are we that generation? Or are we doing and working on ourselves just as much as we work on the technology that we crave? Artificial intelligence and the concerns i would say were pretty valid but the interesting thing about that is is it valid because that's how we see ourselves are we are we looking at them but then really seeing us yeah that could happen yeah. After World War II, a lot of the soldiers returning were determined to rebuild their communities and participate and rebuild families. And our church seemed to experience that breath of fresh air also. Jimerson Town Church was very active. It was thriving. And the church was the glue 
at that time that when the church threw a party, if we had a Halloween party, oh, it was huge. Everybody came. It didn't matter if you were Christian or not Christian. You know, it was a party for the community. And it was really like a community center. It filled a strong role. And then, as Native history will show, another crisis came about. What was that? Late 50s, early 1960s, in western New York, there was this movement to build the Kenzua Dam mm. at near the Pennsylvania border, just above Warren, yeah. Pennsylvania. Yeah. The Kenzua Dam was proposed, and there's a good documentary called Lake of Betrayal. PBS has put it on it several times. A lot of us have been a part of the narrative to that. And I would highly recommend watching that. It gives a good breakdown of the history. Mm, thank of you. Why they needed to build a Kenzu Dam. It, initial purpose is for flood control. Mm-hmm. And there was mass flooding because it goes into three rivers. You have Allegheny and the Mongahela and I think it's Ohio or something. And so there's three rivers that merge in Pittsburgh. So there is a flooding. But it's also, Pittsburgh was a steel town and the plants needed a mechanism to flush a lot of that waste out of the rivers. And by having a controlled dam that could let water out when they needed it was also a receptacle. There was a force of financial steel families that were petitioning and working with Congress to make sure this happened. Because there were special interests. So it wasn't necessarily all flood protection. They really wanted this, again, for some other purposes, for industrial. We battled and we fought, but we lost our legal battle. So 11,000 acres was condemned for a take area for the Kenzua Dam. So the elevation point, 1365, has always been burned into my mind. Even as a young child, I knew what that was. My dad explained that. 1365. Everything below elevation point 1365 was going to be condemned. We would never be able to live on that land. So when I was like five, six, seven years old, that was a significant number in my childhood memory (laughs) that I still remember. That was the land that we lost. That was condemned. And that was a lot of our homes. Bonneville and Quaker Bridge. Cold Spring, Red House, we were all displaced again. Our homes were burned. Two artificial communities were built. And we had to pick one or the other, Jeversontown or Steenberg. The federal government would give you an allotment, allowance, I guess, to build a house. There was maybe like three or four house designs you could pick. So we all wound up with similar (laughs) Monopoly-looking houses. (laughs) And it was a new house. On the outside, I think people thought, oh, what a wonderful thing that the Indians are getting new houses. Aren't they lucky? (laughs) And to us, it was so painful, I think. We probably would never have chosen that as our outcome. Right. I was going to grade school. We lost our school building. We went to also. So we had to, at that point, you call it integration because it was an all-Indian elementary school. So when I was about 10, we made that transition into the Salamanca District School. Not only had all this anger about being kicked out of our houses, we now had to learn how to get along with the white race, I guess you would call it, and integrate. 
So the 60s was filled with a lot of challenges again for the Seneca people. And during that time, all of our churches were closed down. Owneville Church merged with Jimerson Town Church. The Cold Spring Church closed in 64. In 1965, the Jimerson Town Church was condemned, but we had land to go to. So we broke ground and decided to rebuild a new chapel with the Owneville group. I just want to also note that the Olean Presbyterian Church had a pastor there that I think he he was a miracle. Because <laughs> we had just a little budget. And we weren't sure how far that would go to build a church. Reverend Paul Hegan was the reverend that helped us. <laughs> I have a folder in our record on parchment, little parchment paper, like the onion skin tracing paper, just, you know, nine by 11 or whatever, eight by 11. And he drew the schematics and the design for what is now the new Jimerson Town Church. He drew all little pencil and roller sketches. He was an engineer of sorts, architect. And he's got all of the plumbing and the water lines, everything drawn. And he dedicated himself with the men in our church and they had built the church. And in 1966, we had a dedication ceremony for a beautiful new handmade church. The chapel we have now in Jerusalem is beautiful. It's an A-frame and there is a beautiful cross, probably about 30 feet high, that has stained glass panels that lets the light through and it just shines all day in the church. It's beautiful. I just feel such a warmth and compassion with the Olean Presbyterian Church that reached out to us in that time of need and provided that leadership and that manpower to help us out. Good people. Thank you, Olean Church. (laughs) Just wanted to say that. To give a sense of welcome, even amidst such a terrible time of relocation and losing land and home yet again. Wonderful. Yeah. So bringing us to today, I think one of the blessings we've had recently has been the outreach to work with John Fong on establishing more of a hybrid church for this day and age. It's causing a lot of changes within our Jimerson Town Church, positive ones. I really appreciate that chance that it's brought for us to sit down and to rethink what we're doing, how we're going to do it, taking a look at our mission statement and taking the dust off from it and revamping it. And I think There's an excitement and an energy now in our very small church of how we're reaching out and engaging our community in new ways. We're going to be doing more of an outreach Sunday school. If the kids are not coming into the church, we can reach them maybe in other ways, maybe through Facebook, maybe through small distribution of little Sunday school packets that we'll leave in the community that kids can have a mini lesson and be learning that way. So Mm -hmm. we've got new ideas and a lot of things we're excited to work on. Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, Suzanne. What do you think is the most important part of building authentic, loving community? God has so much work out there for us to accomplish. Maybe everyone hasn't been coming to church, but the spiritual needs are there. You just look out every day. There's families in crisis. There's drug abuse. There's alcohol abuse. There's poverty. You look around at all the needs that are so strong out there. We can fill those needs. 
we need to reach out more. And I think that's where we start building that sense of community is that outreach to the people that are suffering. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He didn't go to the well-established places. He reached out to the most neediest ones, letting them know you're not alone. Yeah. That message of you are loved and you're not alone. That's a very, very powerful, powerful message that I think many folks would welcome. We're still very human relationship deprived in the sense that physical contact, you know, there's not a lot of patting someone on the back or, or touching someone on the shoulder or holding a hand. We don't have physical touch. And that's so important. To me, that's a very spiritual contact. In the scope of the history that you've shared with us today, I can hear there's aspects of grief, there's aspects of healing, and there's aspects of hope for renewal. As we think about ways to build bridges and to reconcile with folks, do you have any word of advice for those that might be listening to our conversation today on how to reconcile, how to build bridges when there's been hurts or injustices? Healing's a two-way street and it has to happen between two parties. And I think that listening to each other in a way of honest communication is a start. I think it has to be that conversation. And I think that was one of the reasons why I mentioned, you know, we haven't heard that apology yet from Presbyterian. And I think that's a starting point for us, for our healing, for my healing journey. I would love to have that uh, event to mark that and to have my family there and, you know, to start uh, that discussion of what did the boarding school have on me and my grandchildren, on my parents, my grandparents and all that. So I think being able to sit down and to kind of start being honest with each Mm -hmm. other. And that goes for myself. You know, I have to share and be able to be talking about my feelings, my fears, maybe my distrust and that, you know, how I was raised. I think all of that is the starting point. We all have to deal with our own issues to start that healing and meet each other and to have a, I think, To get the full message, Christ Mm -hmm. tried to teach us to listen. There's things in my heart I have to clear yet, you know? Yeah. To be a good Christian, I can't fully enjoy all of God's message and Christ's work until I can clear up some of my own little hangups here. Because that's not Christian. That's not how we were meant to be. We need to overcome some things so that we can have that full love. Well, Suzanne, I am hoping with you for those opportunities for healing and hope for you and your family and for the Seneca people. I wonder if you have any last words for our audience today. Well, I think that the more that we can listen and learn about each other, that we can come together with a good mind, uh, that will help a lot. And there are some types of activities here at the Seneca Nation, I think, that would be some starting points for anyone that's interested to learn more. 
or like some appropriate conversations with us. We do have the Seneca Iroquois Museum, which is a new facility. It was built just probably about five years ago. And that is a spot to learn. We have a lot of displays and we have some guides that walk you through the displays and can explain a lot. It's a starting point to maybe get sensitivity to our value system and our culture and our history. And we do some community activities that are very open. We have something called Remember the Removal. It's an annual walk that we do for our community. It's very kind of solemn. We're trying to make sure our children know about the Kenzu Dam and the homes that we had. So we go back and revisit some of those desolate areas. There's no kind of markings where we lived, you know, everything's gone, <laughs> flooded. But we'll walk the old roads and elders will talk about it so the younger people can learn. And we invite friends to come and help and walk with us if they're interested. And we have a lunchtime meal at one of our community centers. And the mm -hmm. big meal is a chance for us all to visit uh, people we have, may not have seen in a long time. Sometimes there's a speaker. I know we've had authors come in and speak about some of the historical books that they've written and share some of their references with us. So, you know, it's usually a nice occasion in September. In the 1960s, we also started something I wanted to mention because we still do it today, a major fundraiser. We do an annual Native American Indian foods dinner. It's all of our cultural recipes that we have. It's our Indian foods, lots of corn, beans, and squash, deer meat, turkey. It's like a Thanksgiving dinner. We've been doing this about 65 years now, and it is our annual fundraiser that keeps our church doors open. We do this fundraiser, and that helps us pay the gas and electric and the maintenance and keep things going. <laughs> so we'll be advertising that again for this October. We have takeouts available, and I think we did 250 dinners last October on a oh. takeout basis. What an exciting opportunity. I thank you for your generosity and sharing your story of the Seneca people. I pray for hope and for healing and for us all to treat one another with the belovedness of being made in the image of God that each and every one of us has. And I just thank you for showing me your beautiful life today. Well, thank you. And this has been a good experience for me also, you know, to, to share, to open up, and let people know in an honest way, you know, about my culture and my history. It's been a joy to talk with you. And I call you a fellow holy shenanigator. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yes, we can be about this good trouble work. <laughs> yes. Always necessary. <laughs> yeah. Blessings to you and to those who are listening today. Please know that you can be a part of healing and hope by learning and listening, by taking Suzanne up on these opportunities to learn about the Seneca's history and their present and their future. I give thanks for the Seneca peoples, as well as for Jimerson Town Presbyterian Church and the whole community. May God help us to listen well. 
for love's sake, for the love of God, and for the love of people. Until next time, Holy Shenanigans listeners, may you be well, may you be at peace, may you know that you are loved and that you are not alone.